Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Our teaching text today is taken from Matthew 1, verse 4 to 11. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. You're so welcome. If we haven't met before, my name's Andy and I'm part of the team here and we do hope you feel at home and at ease among us. Thanks, pal. Um, just before we jump in this morning, I want to talk to you about uh, something new that is coming today. Did you check your emails and see if it's arrived? It's there. It's there. Brilliant. Cool. So um, this morning, if you sign up to emails from us, if you're getting emails from us right now, you will have should have an email in your inbox, subject 321. Hit it. There it goes. Um, so first of all, disclaimer on the picture. Um, Mikey and I did this together. I thought it looked class, and uh, I just thought it was like someone threw a rock into the sea, and, you know, that was kind of cool. And then in the 9.30, someone was like, geez, there's like hands in there. It looks like someone's drowning. <laughs> and, uh, so some of you are like, there's hands? Yeah, like, you know, you can, you know, so I just want to say nobody was harmed in the making of this graphic, um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But... Um, if you have been journeying with us for the last year or so, you'll remember in the springtime we did a series called Metrics, where we talked about all the different things we're trying to measure in this community as we seek to surrender our entire lives to the rule and reign of Jesus and learn how to demonstrate that rule and reign in and through our lives and our communities for the flourishing of everybody. And uh, one of the things that we kind of uh, got out of that series was that most of you were asking for a little bit more help on engaging with the scriptures and practically joining in with what Jesus is saying and doing with you and around you and all that sort of stuff. So welcome to 321. Every Sunday afternoon, you will get an email from us, subject 321, and in it, off the uh, back of the Sunday's teaching, you will find three questions for you to discuss with friend, spouse, family, all that sort of stuff. Uh, three questions, two prayers, morning and evening prayer, and one practice. So a spiritual discipline, rhythm or habit for us all to engage with over the next kind of two weeks and for you to reflect on in tribes. Three, two, one will also be the beginning of where tribes go. And so on the Sunday, you'll get the questions that will form the basis for your conversations in tribes, if you so wish. And so you don't have to be nervous about showing up to a tribe, not really sure 
what you're going to talk about, but off the back of Sunday's teaching, you'll have the questions to have a bit of a reflect on, talk about uh, with family and all that sort of stuff before you go to tribes. You will notice this week that most of what I've just said is in the email on a, a weekly basis. All that guff will be out of there. There'll just be three questions, two prayers, and one practice as we seek to join in with what Jesus is doing in us and through us and all around us. We really, really hope it's helpful. And then as well as that, you will also find hopefully in there uh, your reading plan. So we're going to start to read the scriptures together. So there'll be five uh, readings from Monday to Friday. I think an Old Testament and a New Testament reading that we'll send out every week as well so that you can be uh, reading the scriptures together in community, family, all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad it makes sense to you, Jess. The rest of you, I guess, will figure it out as we go. So I want to start a new series this morning uh, called uh, Drowning. And um, <laughs> just kidding. It's called Immersed. And uh, we're going to spend the next three weeks thinking about baptism together. And uh, if you haven't been baptized or uh, you're thinking about being baptized, or you've come to faith recently and you're kind of wondering about baptism, we are going to be celebrating baptism service Sunday evening, the 6th of October in here. And so there will be some stuff appear on the website over the next week for you to sign up for that and all that kind of uh, good stuff. So um, Saint, let's jump in. St. Augustine, 5th century, said this about the sacraments of which baptism was one. He said that, they are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, or another word for that is blessing. Baptism, simply put, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace or blessing. Baptism is a declaration publicly that you have surrendered your life to Jesus and that he is now ruling both in your life and through your life, or the language I'm using with my twins to help them understand what Christianity is all about, is when we realize and invite Jesus to come and be the boss of our lives. That's really what this whole kind of thing is, is where we, we don't just subscribe to a belief system or a set of uh, theological doctrines. Surrendering our lives to Jesus is us fundamentally saying, Jesus, we want you to come and be the boss of our lives. And whilst that's absolutely true, baptism represents more than that because allowing Jesus to be the boss of your life brings with it a whole pile of other things. And we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about three specific things that baptism is an outward and visible sign of, namely that we are immersed in new hope, that we have joined a new family, and that we are now living a new kind of life. If you've heard me talk about baptism before, uh, it's really important we camp out here for just a second and spend some time talking about what baptism isn't. Because in my work and over the last kind of 10 or so years of doing this thing, um, I've bumped into so many times people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, but somehow don't feel like they're ready for baptism. Here's what you need to understand. Baptism is not an outward sign of maturity. That is not what it is. Somewhere in the past, dear knows how many years, decades, hundreds of years, this idea has kind of snuck into the church 
that in order to be baptized, your life needs to kind of look a certain way, that it needs to meet or measure up to some sort of external standard, that in order to qualify for baptism, you need some measure of maturity in your relationship with Jesus. And biblically, folks, that is nonsense. You will not find that pattern in the scriptures. They don't say, surrender your life to Jesus, trust in him, get your life sorted out, grow up in Jesus, make everything neat and tidy, and then present yourself to some pious church leader who will grill you for three weeks and finally decide if you're worthy for baptism. It's a perversion of the gospel, and I know that's strong language, but it's true. The pattern we see in the scriptures is people surrendering their lives to Jesus and instantly being baptized. Baptism is a declaration of surrender, not maturity. And so I know there are some of you sitting here right now who surrendered your lives to Jesus years ago and have not yet felt worthy to be baptized. That mindset is rooted in a lie. The qualifications for baptism are that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. Now listen to me, it's really important we learn how to mature and grow that our character gets formed and shaped into Christ-likeness, hence 321, hence tribes, hence all the other stuff that we're trying to do to help us together learn how to not just surrender our lives to the rule and reign of Jesus, but with the Holy Spirit, demonstrate that rule and reign in and through our lives for the flourishing of everybody. We absolutely believe in the importance of discipleship and maturing in our faith. They're just not required for baptism. So important that you understand that. The word for baptism literally means to immerse. It was not a spiritual or religious word in its origin. It was actually a word borrowed from the fashion industry and sometimes even used in ancient cookbooks. The word baptism is the word that's used to describe the process by which a fabric was dyed. So if you had a fabric that you wanted to change the color, you literally got a big tub of dye, wherever you got the dye from, and you took the undyed garment and you plunged or immersed or baptized it into the dye. You left it in there until such time as every single part of the garment was saturated with the dye. And when you pulled it out, it was changed forever. Equally, there's an account from around 200 BC of the word being used to describe how to make pickles. Who knew they had pickles 200 years before Jesus? Here goes the instructions for how to make pickles after washing the... Okay, we talked about this in 9.30. It's just for me. It's got nothing to do with the sermon. Pickles are cucumbers. Is that right? No? The pickle is an actual pickle? Okay, right, great. Most of the pickles, you see? Who knew? Don't learn anything about Jesus or baptism. You learned that pickles are mostly cucumbers. Now, you can't pickle anything. I've just learned that too. So anyway, the process of pickling a cucumber goes like this. After washing the cucumber in water, you baptize it. This is the 200 BC version, right? After washing the cucumber in water, you baptize it in vinegar solution. And again, the result is permanent change. You can't unpickle a pickle, right? No, maybe you can, who knows? Some of you are like, I think you might be able to do that. 
Go home and try. Let me know next week. I'm quite confident you can. Um, both the garment and the cucumber, after they are baptized in both dye and vinegar, the result is permanent change. Now, it's important to stress here that in Christian baptism, we don't believe that it's the baptism itself that is making the change in us. Remember, the baptism, the immersion in the water is the outward and visible sign that our lives have forever been changed. That moment when you surrender your life to Jesus and God by his spirit comes and lives within you, you will never be the same again. Now, I know there are lots of you that have wandered from God and have had times in your lives when you felt really distant and all those kinds of things, but the reality is when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are changed forever. And baptism is an outward and visible sign that that has happened in our lives. The thing I love that we get to see and experience in baptism is that being immersed in the water is indeed a metaphor of us being fully immersed in the story of God. That just like the cucumber or the garment, there's no part of it that is not touched by the dye or the vinegar. Whenever we're baptized, it is impossible to get out of the tank and have part of you still dry. Our entire lives get saturated in the story of God. Our teaching text this morning from Mark 1 verse 4 says this, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Pause in verse six for a minute. This is a bit of a mad passage. Some of you will be very familiar with this. And you think that Mark writing this just thought some of you are really into fashion and would wonder what John was wearing. That's not why this detail is in here. What you need to understand is John appeared like a flippin' barbarian. This wild, crazy man roaming the countryside, dressed like a camel, eating whatever he could scrape up or find lying around. And it was he that would herald, prepare Jesus is coming. And those whose spiritual antenna was tuned correctly recognized that in John's voice was God's voice. Why is that important? So often the voice of God comes in surprising and unexpected and dare I say, even offensive vehicles. Can you imagine what John smelt like? It's not really a joke. Like he would have been absolutely humming. And he begins to speak and people begin to hear that is... God talking, we need to get around that. Listen to me, the voice of God can never be sanitized or tamed. John, in many ways, in his external appearance, is the perfect vehicle 
for the disruptive voice of God. Some of you have been trying to avoid the voice of God for ages, thinking there's no way God would sound like that. There's no way God would say that. One of the favorite things I used to bump into was when people said, you know, God gave us common sense for a reason. Square that with most of what Jesus says with his disciples. Hi, Peter, come on, jump out on the water and see how it goes for you. Almost every time I've heard God speak to me, it has felt ridiculous, like nonsensical. Like, really, God, do you want me to do that? If you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to be prepared to get around things that smell like camels. We're waiting for the sanitized, pious, gentle, Swedish Jesus who only ever strokes lambs. Meanwhile, this is him right here, Swedish Jesus right here. <laughs> Sorry, for those of you who don't know, our lovely youth pastor sometimes gets mistaken for Swedish Jesus. Um, <laughs> it is so important, it is so important that we understand the voice of God does not come in safe, sanitized packages, but listen to me, his voice always leads us into life. But sometimes that journey requires us to feel a little uncomfortable. Verse 7, this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I want us to pray for a moment, but um, I want you to do something different than what we normally do in this moment. Usually in this moment in the sermon, I pray that God would speak to us. I want to do something slightly different now. Will you close your eyes? And would you invite God to speak to you if you feel brave enough? Pray for yourself right now. Father God, would you come and speak? Holy Spirit, we welcome your voice. Forgive us for mistaking you for other things and mistaking other things for you. Come and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, the, the thing that we get to see and experience in baptism is that being immersed in the water is a metaphor for us being fully immersed into the story of God. And January 2008, I moved from Pasadena in uh, Los Angeles to downtown LA. And uh, downtown LA in January 2008 was not the most pleasant place to live. And when a few friends heard that I was moving downtown, they cautioned me that downtown LA, particularly at nighttime, was incredibly dangerous. People being mugged and things being stolen and all that sort of stuff. And they said, look, Andy, whatever you do at nighttime, do not go out on your own. Get in your car and drive wherever you need to go, but just don't go out at night. 
Now, I've never been that good at planning my meals ahead. And one day I'd been studying all afternoon and into the evening and I'd completely lost track of time. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if this ever happens to you, just it felt like all of a sudden I was totally aware of how incredibly hungry I was. I was like, oh man. And I went and looked in the kitchen and of course, um, fairly typical for me, there was absolutely nothing in any of the cupboards. And so I was thinking through, what am I gonna do? And I thought, oh, there's a little co-op type shop just a few blocks away, I'll go there. And it didn't really hit me until I was kind of halfway up the street and then all of a sudden, my friend's warnings came back into my head as I realized it was eight o'clock and almost dark and there's nobody in any of the streets. And I'm kind of standing there going, do I continue to go to the shop? Do I go back inside? What, 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 what should I do here? And I thought, look, it's only a short walk. I'll be fine. And so I went up to the corner and I turned the corner and I'm heading kind of the two blocks down to where the shop is. And as I turned the corner, I noticed walking in front of me these two massive guys with hoods up. And I'm like, oh no. Well, maybe they're going to the shop too. I'll just stay a safe distance between them and me and you know, be ready to run or have a fight in the middle of downtown LA at any kind of moment. So I'm kind of a little bit anxious, but I'm okay, you know, and there's nobody else around, and we're walking down towards the shop, and as I'm walking, one of them kind of slows down and looks over his shoulder right at me, and he's got this hood on, so I can't quite see his eyes, but I can see that he's looking right at me. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where it's like your blood turns to ice. I was like, oh, no, and then I looked at my feet and realized I'd got flip-flops on. <laughs> I'm like, this is not good, and... Uh, I started to panic, I'm like, what do I do? And while I'm in this kind of mental scramble, the other one turns around, exact same thing, hood on, can't quite see his eyes, looks right at me, and I'm thinking, this is it. I'm about to get mugged in LA, I wonder if I can use flip-flops for weapons. And so I pull my phone out, start to Google, what do you do if you're getting mugged? And um, I'm walking slowly and I notice that their pace has dramatically changed. They're now walking really slowly and the distance between us is getting shorter and shorter and then they stop and both of them at exactly the same time turn around and are now arms folded staring right at me. I'm thinking, I wonder, can I run? Should I throw a phone or a flip-flop? What should I do? My heart is beating a million miles an hour. I'm literally just about to turn around and start sprinting as best I can in flip-flops up the street whenever a bus pulls up and the pair of them get on the bus and off they go. And I'm going, I almost got mugged. And then I start to kind of play the whole thing back in my mind and realize, of course, at no point in that whole drama, was I ever going to get mugged? That actually, every time they turned around, they were looking at the bus that was coming to see if they needed to run to get to the bus stop. And by the time they got to the bus stop, of course they did what everyone does when they get to the bus stop. They stopped and turned around and waited for the bus. And whenever their bus arrived, they got on it. What has anything, any of this got to do with Jesus or baptism? In those mad moments in LA, I was immersed in a story that said the streets of Los Angeles are dangerous. And if you're not careful, you're going to get mugged. I was so immersed in that story that I didn't notice the bus that was coming behind me or the bus stop that these two incredibly civilized gentlemen had stopped at. 
I'm so immersed in this story that I've decided, of course they're thugs. Look at their clothes. Here's my question for us this morning. What story are you immersed in and how is it affecting your life? What story are you immersed in and what important details is it deleting? Perhaps a better question is, whose story are you immersed in? Whose story is determining your expectations on the world around you and what life is going to do to you? Perhaps your family story may be one of incredible success. And the reality is you live with all of the expectations of that story on your shoulders, weighing on you every day. Perhaps your family story is one of incredible dysfunction and brokenness. And the best you can ever hope for, given the story that you live in, is some sort of ability to manage the dysfunction that you live with every single day. Perhaps you've been betrayed by someone you loved, and the story you're immersed in is that people can never be trusted. What I want to say to us this morning is that God sees all of those stories. God sees your story. Even the weird one that you're all caught up in that's perhaps not quite true. God sees the story that you're currently living in. But here's what's really, really important. Your story, yes, it matters to God, But he has a story too. And it's not necessarily your story. God has a story that's unfolding all around us. And he invites us to immerse our lives in his story. The culture that we live in tells us that you are the central character in your story. And everyone else is a supporting cast. That's bad for you. It's really unhelpful if you want to follow Jesus. Because in the God story, the central character is Jesus himself. In God's story, his story gets incarnated or embodied in the person of Jesus. And it's a story ultimately of love, forgiveness, freedom, and hope. The God story is a story of love and forgiveness and freedom and hope. And our lives begin to make sense when our stories get immersed in that story. When our stories get redeemed in that story. There is incredible freedom when you understand that there is something going on all around us that is so much bigger than each of us and yet we're invited into it. A few weeks ago, I was chatting with somebody who's not yet following Jesus. And I began to ask them about the kind of last few years of their life and where they've been and what they're doing, all this sort of stuff. And they said this thing towards the end of the uh, conversation that blew my mind. She said, I've been trying to be my own God for years and it's hopeless. I've been trying to be my own God for years and it has left me hopeless That's the gospel of the age we live in. Become your own God. 
Do whatever you want. As long as you don't harm anybody else, do whatever you want. And the reality is, you try that life out, you will discover that it's hopeless because everything is on you. It's a pretty heavy burden to carry. You see, we get invited by Jesus to literally immerse our story in his story. And baptism is the most incredible picture of that. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He says that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. I'm gonna unpack that text in two weeks' time more fully. But here's what you have to notice. Paul is saying that through baptism, our story gets immersed in his story. One of the stories that seems pretty out of control in our culture today is the story of guilt and the story of shame. Many of you will know Brene Brown. Um, she's a shame researcher. Imagine that being your job. <laughs> it's got to be fun getting up in the morning. What are you doing today? Just going to go research some shame. Um, anyway, Brene Brown, that's what she does. She's a shame researcher. And her original TED Talk from TEDx Houston has more than 11 million hits on YouTube. And if you haven't watched her Call to Courage uh, Netflix special, just go home and watch it this afternoon or some evening this week. It's called Call to Courage. It's on Netflix. It's absolutely incredible. And she shares in it how this these things of guilt and shame have just got completely out of control in the world that we live in. Talk to any psychiatrist, psychologist, or counselor, and they will tell you a huge amount of their work with people is helping them deal with guilt and with shame. The irony is that we've never lauded freedom more loudly than we do today, and yet if we're honest, most of us are haunted by these shadows and ghosts of guilt and of shame. Some of you maybe saw the news item this week about Jesse Nelson from the band Little Mix, my favorite. And um, some, of you are like, some of you are like, I don't know if he's joking. And I'm not gonna tell you. Um, but her story is tragic absolutely tragic that after their success on, I think it was X Factor, maybe Britain's Got Talent, whatever it was, wherever that band was discovered, when she was supposed to be experiencing the absolute mountaintop experience of her life, what actually happened was she was bombarded by strangers online about her appearance to the point that she attempted suicide. Let's do a little experiment for a minute. How many of you, and you mightn't be a Christian yet, you maybe are just discovering faith, you maybe don't know what to think about the Bible, but how many of you in this room have some sort of code of ethics or morality that you're trying to live by? Just wave at me if you have some sort of ethics or something, you know, just like don't lie to people, be good, treat others as you want. Right, most of us, okay, cool. How many of you live up to that code every single day? Like you never... You never make a mistake. You never fall short of it. Right. This is amazing. I, yeah, you're lying. <laughs> I work with you. <laughs> is this, this is crazy, right? I mean, suspend the Bible and God. Like, if you create your own moral standards, you can't even live up to them, right? Like, none of us can. 
And God's standard is way beyond what we would kind of dream up for ourselves. You want to figure out what that is? Just go and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, right? This is one of the reasons why we're haunted by guilt and shame. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all, if we're honest, live with this sense of regret Maybe not on a daily basis, but at least on a weekly or monthly basis where we're like, oh, I can't believe I did that or said that. I really shouldn't have made that decision. I remember when our kids were very small, Nora was talking to Jason Scott, who leads the vineyard in Dungannon. They're on FaceTime. And uh, Jason was like, well, Nora, how are you doing today? And she went, Uncle JC, I made a bad decision today. And he looked back and said, only one, Jeepers, you're doing well. (laughs) The reality is, We all live with this sense of regret that can fester and become shame. Now, of course, we don't talk about it much. We mostly do a great job of hiding it. And we have all sorts of habits and secret addictions that help us manage this feeling of not quite being good enough, but guilt and shame haunts us like ghosts of some sort of nightmare nipping at us in the quiet corners of our minds and our hearts. Listen to verse four of Mark one. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The reality is our souls crave forgiveness. We long for forgiveness and we've no idea where to go to try to find it, or greater still, how to live in it. And so the pervading narrative becomes one of guilt and of shame. We need forgiveness. There is no freedom without it. And the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that forgiveness and freedom are available. They're available. First John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and purify us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. Forgiveness is available, and all it requires is that we are able to be honest. Honest with God and honest with each other, that we would give up the game of trying to convince everybody that everything's okay all of the time. Things are never okay all of the time. We never get through a day or a week where we don't make decisions that we regret. But they don't have to hang over us and they do not have to define us. If we can learn to exercise the muscle of humility and come to God honestly saying, I messed up, would you forgive me? It's important we learn to forgive each other. It's important that we learn to forgive ourselves But when we come to God, acknowledging our brokenness and our sin, God's forgiveness releases something in us that's impossible to get anywhere else, and that is eternal hope. And I don't mean hope for what will happen in eternity. I mean hope that will last forever. 
Hope that can stand up to any storm that life can throw at you. Hope that is utterly supernatural in its origin, supernatural in its source, and supernatural in on its effect on you. Hope that comes from God. That's the story that we're immersing ourselves in. It is a story that says forgiveness is available and it will set you free. Verse nine to 11 in Mark four says this. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. If you ever wondered what humility in a person looked like, just read Jesus. This is God incarnate coming to the guy that smells like a camel for baptism. John understands. And in the other gospel accounts, he looks at Jesus and goes, no way am I baptizing you. I'm not worthy to untie your shoes. Never mind baptize you. Jesus came from Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, just as he was coming up Out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Jesus gets baptized. He sees heaven open, the Holy Spirit fall on him and God the Father speak his love and affirmation over him. I don't know if you ever read the scriptures and think this doesn't make sense. Like for me, this moment is absolutely in the wrong place in the story, right? This is God affirming Jesus. This is my son. He's awesome. I'm proud of him. I love him. All he's done up till now is complete a carpentry apprenticeship. There's no achievements on the CV. He hasn't done anything that he was supposed to do. He came to earth with a mission. None of it has been accomplished. God's going, He is awesome. I absolutely love him. Surely this moment should be at the end when he cries it's finished, breathes his last and is hanging there on the cross. Surely that's the moment for God to go, well done, son. I'm so proud of you. You did it. That's how we work, right? Your value is attached to your contribution. So long as you're doing what you're supposed to, so long as what you're achieving, what you've signed up to, so long as the CV and the accomplishments are racking up, then you have value and then God can say, I love you. And yet in this moment, Jesus hasn't achieved anything yet. And God speaks and says, that's my boy. I'm so proud of him. I love him. This is really good news to all of us living in an age that is addicted to a merit-based value system. The truth being, we do nothing to earn God's love other than accept it. We don't have to do anything to earn his love. We just have to accept it when we immerse ourselves in his story, we too experience God the Father's words over us, this is my kid, and I love them. Baptism is the outward 
and visible sign of the inward spiritual reality that we have been liberated from a need to prove our value or our worth. We are no longer driven by the fears of needing to look a certain way, be friends with certain people, make a certain amount of money, or live in certain neighborhoods or kinds of houses. Baptism is the declaration that we have discovered and are now living in a new hope because we don't need to earn this or prove ourselves worthy of any of it. In baptism, we immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus. And because of his story and his grace, God gets to speak over us. This is my kid. And I love them. We are immersed in God and he takes our sin and our shame and he washes us clean. And invite the band, come on back up guys, we'll respond in just a minute. So what story are you living in this morning? We have said this so many times in this community, there is no such thing as being too broken for Jesus, only too proud. There is no such thing as being too messed up, too broken, too many mistakes, too many issues. There is only too proud. When we aren't prepared to say, I don't have it all together. We're not prepared to say, Jesus, I need you. We don't really get very far. But the moment, the moment we're able to say, Jesus, I need you. I've screwed up. I've made mistakes, I haven't got it all right, I certainly haven't got it all together. He is faithful and just to forgive us and set us free from the ghosts of guilt and shame. Just imagine what your life would look like if you were completely free of insecurity feeling like you needed to prove something to somebody, feel like you needed to live up to some other standard. Just imagine if your mornings or your days began with God's voice over you, echoing these words from Mark 1, this is my child, I love them, I'm with them, I'm proud of them. What if that was the atmosphere that you lived your life in? If you're able, will you stand? you to just open yourself to God and really specifically will you ask him to point out or highlight or expose 
stories that you're believing or living in that are getting in the way of his story. Stories of unworthiness, stories of fear, stories of dysfunction or brokenness, stories of doubt, whatever they are, ask God to point them out, bring them to him, ask him to fill you with his story.